Um, well, you know, uh, I was really fascinated. Um, Pastor John and I don't communicate before uh, the service as to what music he's going to play ever. And if you reflected on the words to the songs, you're going to see a significance about the tie-in with the study this evening in relation to Western theology. And uh, I know some folks, you know, you're maybe uncomfortable singing. Um, The practice of worship is this idea that you're singing to an invisible God, ascribing attributes to him. And uh, the the attributes tonight, especially in the song, are so fitting to what we're going to cover in relation to Western theology. um, Because what makes Western theology so much different than every other concept of God in, in the world and throughout history is a very unique aspect. And it has the foundations in the government that we have today. And you're going to see that as we go through this. And we're going to take a look at something that, um, well, young people don't necessarily like. It's uh, DTR. Uh, if, if, if uh, you know, my son comes home and says, Dad, I, I'm sweet on a girl. Um, and then through the course of that, you say DTR. And then the idea is, what does that mean? Define the relationship. Uh, where are you guys at in, in relation to each other? And you're always defining the relationship. You've been with somebody for a long time, and you've been dating, and, and you say, well, really, where's this going? What's, what are we doing here? And uh, what we're going to see tonight in relation to Western theology is God's relationship with man. Define the relationship, because if, if you're going to start a journey, every great journey begins with the end in mind. But you also have to realize that if you're building something, you have to have that foundation And what is that foundation that will affect everything else you're going to put on top of that foundation? And and this is absolutely paramount because the way you see God is going to affect every decision that you make in relation to everything you do, whether that reflects itself in a a government establishment or employee-employer relationships or family or anything along those lines. Why are you here? How did you get here? And of course, we know even in our own culture today, it could be said that America, and, and, and rightfully so, uh, started with a Judeo-Christian heritage. And we've gone through that in previous studies, and I think I've given countless evidence for it. And if you want to contend with that, we can. I haven't had anyone do that yet, and I'd love to sit down with you and see where you come up with your evidence, because I think it's insurmountable, the evidence contrary to what you would consider uh, to refute that. And yet... In regards to this Judeo-Christian heritage, here we are today in really kind of a loss of that in Western culture. We're now embracing kind of a progressive mindset. Uh, we're, we're, we've basically opened up the floodgates to remove God from the equation. We don't educate our children in this foundational principle of where we've come from, who are we in relation to the universe. And then we build on top of that, and we're watching uh, this idea once was told to me, why, do, why are we shocked that our children act like animals when we tell them they've evolved from them? Ponder that for a little bit. Maybe that it took you a little while. But if you have no moral absolutes, if you have no, no right or wrong, and everything is situational ethics, and everyone gets to do what seems right in their own eyes, and there's no foundational principles, it's a moving target that you can never hit. And now we're reaping the result, results of that where, you know, we, we've got contrary things happening in our culture. One in particular, uh, as we've looked at with, with the shooting, uh, the, the mass shooting in Florida um, and, and the call for the removal of guns uh, from our culture. And, and as I've said, oftentimes I've, I, I have a handgun in my home that's registered 
And I, I've never lost a wink of sleep worrying about that gun shooting me. Are you pro- processing that? Now, guns don't kill people. But the person behind the weapon does. We don't have a gun problem in America. We have a morality problem in America. And we call it entertainment. We teach our children how to take human life as we just watch hours and hours of Xbox games where you're just annihilating humanity. Uh, there, there comes a consequence with that. We, we devalue humankind. And, and the idea is, um, you know, we, we need to take away guns and, and the only people that will be killing are going to be people who, are, who have them illegally. Well, let's apply the same logic to human life in the womb. The idea is, the argument is, if, if abortion is illegal, only illegal abortions will occur. Well, in one case, they're stating that that is necessary. In another case, they reject that logic. So what are the rules? How do we play by those rules? And what are the absolutes and what governs that? Because if you're going to enter into a contractual agreement, you want to understand what are we dealing with here? Yes? Is anyone else struggling with the moving target that you're trying to hit? And now as we're redefining mankind that you can, by your own selection and your own choice, you can define who you are sexually that day. I'm, I'm, I'm tr- transgender, uh, biological male, but now I'm a female. I like to say that I'm a... Um, a monogamous lesbian trapped in a man's body. <laughs> Process that one. I know it's Wednesday. I'm just trying to get you awake here. But we, we watch this and the confusion that we have, we have just leveled on our culture is unbelievable. And so here we are in this massive confusion, division, and this idea of who governs who and how is that to, to, to be established. It's so vital because... What you're seeing in America today is a removal of this Western theology and embracing of that which is counter to Western theology. And what makes Western theology so different and so significant in the history of the world that as it would travel through the Reformation into Western Europe and then come across the Atlantic to the United States, where a nation that represented less than 3% of the world's population in its entirety throughout world history would be responsible for more patents, more material, you know, generation of wealth and, and uh, more symphonies. And I, we can go on and on and on more inventions, etc. this small percent. And yet all of South America possesses far more natural resources than North America does. But we have, we, we, if you take a picture and I want to do, but I ran out of time, a picture at night of the world, the United States of America is lit up at night. And you see places like North Korea, there's, there's not a light to be found. South Korea, it's just lit with industry. What does that? How does that occur? What is it that is different? I mean, especially North Korea and that peninsula, you say, well, America's great because of its land and its resources. That doesn't work because North Korea's same land. Same. Matter of fact, North Korea has more, air, uh, more farmable land than South Korea does. In the armistice, they got all of the good land. And yet they, they're impoverished and their people are eating dirt. And yet South Korea is flourishing. Their people got freedom. They're the 11th largest GDP on the face of the earth. Same culture, same language, same ground, actually better ground in the north. There's, there's, there's a philosophical difference here. One group flourishes, the other's imprisoned. Where does that come from? And how do we process that? And for those of you who aren't churchgoers and, and you're struggling with the worship music or the kind of the churchy feel, roll with it. 
And because for weeks we didn't have any of that and the other folks were rolling with it. So just balance yourself a little bit. But let's get to a place where we can take a look at it. I want to ask a question this evening, and this is it. How is the biblical understanding of God in Western theology revolutionary? How is the biblical view of God in Western theology revolutionary on the face of the earth? In uh, the worship time, we, we heard songs like All Consuming Fire, uh, Who is Like You, God of Wonders, None Like You, Lord of Heaven and Earth, and then the word Hallelujah, which is this idea of singing praise to this invisible God, Who is Like You. And it's, it's a remarkable depiction because every culture in some regards worships something or someone or polytheistic many gods. And, and what is the difference in Western theology, Judeo-Christian theology, as opposed to every other concept of every religion in the world in relation to it. And it's this one question that I've posed tonight. How is the biblical understanding of Western theology, that of God, revolutionary? And I, I had some thoughts and I wanted to share them with you. This, this Western theology is a revolutionary view of God that turns the world upside down because it's the exact opposite of what the rest of the world thinks. It's the exact opposite of what, of what the rest of the world thinks. The rest of the world thinks this. Ready? That God should somehow be our master and that we should work for him. He's a capricious God. We're here to do his bidding. He's the creator. We're the creature. We serve him. We are here to do his bidding. We're here to tend it. We're to, we're to work. And we are somehow, he's the boss and we are his workers. And some of you are going, well, that's Christianity. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's fascinating because wouldn't you want to describe a deity as being supreme? Oh, good. Few people are awake. Maybe, I'm not sure. Uh, Let's maybe define another way. Wouldn't you think that you would define a deity as supreme? Thus in full authority? We do. And that he's in charge? And that we work for him? Even Christians are struggling over that. I heard you speak and I know your faith. And I disagree with you. And I think the Bible disagrees with you. That somehow we work for him is not the idea of Western theology. This is going to blow your mind a little bit tonight. And we're going to take a look at it through this DTR, define the relationship. What is man's relationship to God? DTR, define the relationship. We're going to take a look at five different figures through the course of the evening. We'll do it quickly so I won't bore you to death. And and it's all revolving around this concept of covenant, covenant. Um, and, And so with Western theology comes a vision of God so wholly different. It's like this. All other religions of the world except that of biblical religions believe that God should somehow be our master and that we should work for him. But here's the difference in Western theology. With Western theology comes a vision of God in which God says, I will work for you. Now, a lot of folks, even churchgoers, don't have that understanding. And it is significant in Christian understanding and Christian theology and also Jewish uh, understanding of theology. And we're going to begin with a passage of scripture, Old Testament, which is, um, 
that's what the Christian world calls it, but, but I won't go through um, how we came up with a canon of scripture for, for the Jewish faith, but suffice it to say in Christendom, we call it the Old Testament, whereas Jews would, would, would not call it the Old Testament. They just call it their Bible. And so in their Bible and also in our Old Testament, we find this verse in Isaiah 64, 4, for since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has I seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. No God beside you who acts or works for those who wait for him. All other religions exist for either no particular purpose at all because they reject the supernatural. Uh, They may resist the relevance of anything supernatural, or if they do believe that there is a God or many gods, that they take their purpose to be to serve the gods by working for the God's benefit as God's wait for them to get busy doing all of their obedient chores. And then in, in the rest of the world's theology, the byproduct of that, and this is the foundation you build on it, the byproduct of that mindset of all the other religions in the world is humans in this conception are effectively slaves on the divine plantation or workers on earth's factory floor. Now, are you seeing where we're going with this? We're in a nation where all men are created endowed by their with certain, those rights are beneficial, aren't they? Let's think about those. Life. Pursuit of happiness. What kind of a God would do that? Amen. That's why we sing to him. When you sing to somebody who's doing wonders, I mean, we, we sing to football players who can throw a ball. No, it's just, it's, it's wrapped pig flesh sewn together. And they, how far they, we just cheer them. But yet you have a God, and you'll show up on Sundays for that and pay good money. But you, you think of a God that would endow his people, his create creation, with inalienable rights. He'd give them these rights that no one can take them from you, and you can't give them away. And those are life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness that were created equal. It's a fascinating concept, so different than the rest of the world's teachings. And yet... The rest of the world sees this idea of God keeping all the, that, that, that mankind is, is having to serve these gods, small g, by keeping all the wheels turning for their divine master. And yet not in Western theology. All 66 books of the Bible attest to the exact opposite of the rest of the world's view. This is what makes Christianity and Judaism so unique in the history of the world. God created us so that he could work, ready? For us. God created us so that he could work for us. A lot of folks, even Christians in the room, going, I'm not sure where you're going with this. Again, I, I don't necessarily think you understand covenant. We're going to go through this. I'll give a defense for it. You can contest with me later. Be, be gentle. Our role as his creatures are to simply wait dependently on him for all of his benefits. Not lazy, but waiting upon him. And I'll explain that momentarily. The benefits he wants to pour out on all of us as sheer and utter gifts of a concept that the rest of the world does not comprehend, and it's called grace. A very key aspect of Western theology, grace. And what is this waiting that Isaiah speaks of in Isaiah 64, where he says, 
who acts on those who wait for him. What is this waiting? You find the answer um, in chapter eight of Isaiah that those who wait are hoping in God. This idea that we hope in him, that he's gonna come through. It's kind of like parents that you love and you always know they're gonna take care of you. Now you've got work to do and you've got responsibilities in the house, but when it comes down to the bottom of it all, you know that they work for your benefit and on your behalf. It's a, it's a parent-child relationship. Now that's how it's supposed to be. Granted, now with the implosion of our culture, it doesn't seem to be that way as we see the destruction of the human family. But it's this idea that benefits come to us in God's timing. We're not entitled to them, but as we wait patiently on him, he provides these. Uh, take a look at Acts seventeen twenty-five, And this is Paul on the Areopagus, or uh, yeah, Areopagus in, in, uh, in Athens as he is contending with all of these Stoics and all these philosophers. And he speaks about the, the, the um, monument to the unknown God. And he speaks of that God. And then he goes on to declare who this unknown God is. He says, this unknown God, he is not worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives what? Life and breath and all things. This is a God who gives, not a God that is capricious, that you, you need to, to do his bidding and that you are a worker on his factory floor and he is the boss and you are the worker. And, and if he wants it, your opinion, he'll give it to you and you'll shut up, do as you're told and like it. There's no relationship. He is superior. And yet the scriptures call him Abba, which means Papa, Daddy, the same that you'd have a relationship with your own earthly father if you have a good relationship, that concept of it. And yet we come to see and and even implement this wrong concept of who God is as though he's waiting to just snuff you and you're waiting for the other boot to fall. Yeah? So why is this revolutionary? Is God our boss? Is he our employer? God is the employee, but we are not his boss. Hold that in your mind, because we're going to cover it later, and I'll show you earthly illustrations that you'll go, I see it. You'll have an aha moment. God is the employee, but we are not the boss of God. There's a term that we're going to take a look at called berit in the Hebrew, and it just simply means covenant. And this is defining the relationship God has with his people. And we're going to begin as I said earlier, with this idea of DTR, define the relationship. And there are five major moments in scripture for Western theology that will define this relationship that we have with God. And we're going to look at these five covenants, these five relationships to determine the relationship that we have with the Lord by five characters in scripture, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. And uh, we're going to begin with uh, Adam. Adam is uh, the, the very first being, and uh, out of his side came Eve. It was interesting because if you look at the first six days of creation, uh, and then the creation of man in Genesis six, and then it goes into other por- uh, the uh, the sixth day it goes into creation of man, and you look at the other portion of the beginning of Genesis where it shows that woman was taken out of his side, not from his head that that she would lord over him, or from his foot that he would have dominion over him, but from his side that they would walk mutually together. And that they would have this idea of, of populating the earth and they'd be given a relationship. And, and in this, um, 
there is, there is this universal concept of time that's established. Um, there was evening, there was, there was morning, there was evening the first day. So what does that tell you? It tells you about time. So prior to the first day of creation where God said, let there be light and light was created. Prior to that, what was God doing before, you know, on, on the zero day of, of creation when he was eternal? Uh, well, St. Augustine said, if I can remember exactly, St. Augustine said, God was creating hell for anyone who would ask that question. <laughs> I thought that was funny. No, in all, in all fairness, the one thing that was missing in all of eternity that God couldn't exercise in his attributes, the only thing missing that God couldn't exercise in his attributes was mercy and grace. And so when time began, mercy and grace entered into the equation. And when you look at this creation of the earth with this covenant with Adam, which we're going to see momentarily, uh, think about this. Is the universe eternal? No, it's bound by time because there was morning, there was evening the first day. So the universe is bound by time. God is outside the space and time continuum. He's an eternal being. We're bound by time. So creation is, the the universe itself is bound by time. Who created this universe? It's described in the very beginning of the book of Genesis. In the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this idea of barach, out of nothing, God created something. And we've covered that. You can't even comprehend or think of nothing. So we're bound by time. We're created by God, which is fascinating because in our founding documents, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are. So even our founders had this concept of a benevolent creator who works for us. How does he work for us? He gives us life and liberty and this pursuit of happiness, inalienable rights. He works for us. He is the employee, but we are not his boss. He is the employee, but we are not his boss. Is humanity just one of his unremarkable pieces of the rest of creation? Let me ask that question again for those of you who are still asleep. Is humanity, is man just one unremarkable piece of the rest of his creation? No. No, no, no. The first day, God said, let there be, and there was. And then he said, let there be, and there was, and let there be, and there was this idea. And it was good, tov. And and he he uses another word, kav, very and and good, tov. And, And as he goes through this, it's not until the sixth day that instead of saying, let there be, look what he does on the sixth day. Then God said, let us, Elohim. It's a picture of, of the Trinity, even in the Old Testament. It's a singular plurality or unified diversity where let us, it's a, it's a relational aspect. He's, who's he speaking to if there's only one God? Let us make man in the image of a rock, the image of a tree. Let us make man in our image. Very personal, very personal. And, and, he, and he takes these steps that he didn't take in the other five days of creation. All the other five days of creation were very impersonal. But here, it's very personal. 
Let there be is what he was saying in the previous ones, but here he says, let us make man in our own image. God gets more personally involved here in this creation of male and female. And actually at the end of it, he said it was very good after he creates man. Very good. I don't know about you, but I find that very cool. Good for what? Good for humanity. He's working for man's benefit. And what did he do after the sixth day? He rested. And what's interesting about the first six days of creation, there was morning, there was evening, first day, morning, evening, second day, morning. What about the seventh day? Is there a morning and an evening? No? Find it in the scripture. God's finished and he rests in his work. You know what it's like when he rests in his work? It wasn't like he's going, you people are exhausting to make. He's God. What it means by rested is Michelangelo. Wait, who made the Mona Lisa? Leonardo da Vinci, yeah? Leonardo da Vinci finishing the last stroke on the Mona Lisa and saying, not another stroke. I'm resting, it's complete. That's the picture. It is exactly what was in my head. It, it's, it's like like Michelangelo and, 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 and creating the statue of David. You know, everyone sees marble, he sees a statue trapped inside. And after that last chisel, he just says, it is finished. And he rests in his creation. He's, he's, he's set it free in this picture. And what's so amazing about it is, this is where we live today. Very good, created in his image. God rests in the benefits that he provides to Adam. He goes through all of this. And look what he says of these benefits. According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. I want to bless them over the birds of the air. I want to bless them over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. He just lays out these blessings. He gives it to them. He says, name the trees, name the animals, eat of any fruit and do whatever you like of this tree. However, this tree, this is the only exit from my presence from this tree. And if you're going to have a choice, you need to, if you're going to have free will, you got to have a choice from this tree. Do not eat for eating. You will surely die. So I want to give you the consequences. If you want exits out, exit out of my presence and you want to take what I've created you, this ability to love, to have a relationship with me, because you've been created in a relational aspect with the Elohim, let us a, a relational Godhead. And he says to us, I want to have a relationship with you, but here's the exit sign. You can walk out the door and divorce me. But I want you to know I'm the giver of life. I've created you. I'll have mercy and grace. Even if you walk out, I'll be patient with you and, and draw you back. But if you want to do things on your own and you don't want to do it my way and you don't want to live in, in what I want to bless you with, there, there you go. And eating of it, dying, you'll surely die. It means current and progressive. Time begins to tick. And for some of us, it happens quickly. Others, we get 90, 100, 120 years, and then, and, and how we live that in his presence, enjoying his benefits, and realizing he's our employee, but we're not his boss. Having this mutual relationship that every time we wait for him, we're blessed, but if we want to do things on our own, we walk out of his presence, and that clock ticks. And between a man's birth and the day of his death is that dash on the tombstone, which is our life. And we're here we're here that he's our employee. He wants to bestow blessing on us and he wants us to wait on him and have that relationship with him. But we walk away from that relationship. Now, what happens when we walk away from that relationship in regards to the rest of the universe? Well, before we get to that, take a look at some of these passages 
The Lord thy God is in the midst of thee and uh, is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love and he will joy over thee with singing. You know what he's doing when he says it rests on the seventh day? He's resting in his love for you. I've created them exactly, not one more stroke. I've created them to love them. Name another God in all the earth like this God. This is Western theology. Now, when you build on that, what does it create? This is a foundation. What does it create? First of all, he's not capricious. He's not a king and we're not his serfs. That gives mankind this opportunity to say, if we have this kind of relationship with our creator, we can have this kind of relationship with each other. And if we apply these truths in this relationship with him of honesty and truth and operating in the context of the benefits he bestows on us, living in the order of which he's designed, we all benefit. But when we lie and cheat and steal and covet as we've walked out of his presence, what happens to the culture? It doesn't matter how many contracts you come up with. It doesn't matter how you redefine humanity. It doesn't matter with what just stupidity you write and what laws you come up in any any palace or government that's established that tries to somehow regulate man apart from this idea of waiting on him and doing what he says to receive blessings that he's waiting to give us because he's resting in his love for us. It's like a parent. I, when I told Natasha, when she walked out of the house and she said, I'm out of here. And I said, sweetie, it's for me and my house. We serve the Lord. And when you go, I get it. You just don't want to be a part of it. But when you get back, there's a bed and three hot meals and, and a God that we serve. And you, you, and I told her when she left that night, I said, if you find anything better than the Lord out there, you got to come back and tell me. And she didn't, her life was a living hell. And she, and when she came back, it's like, this is a lovely bed. And I wish you could have seen where she lived. Thank God I didn't, but the folks who moved her out, it was awful. And what we'll put up with just to have our own way in rebellion from a family that loves you, that wants to bestow blessing, but there's, there's an order to where those blessings come from, that he is our employee, he wants to bestow blessings on us, but we're not his boss. We can't tell him how to receive those. It's, we're not entitled to them. Give me what I want so I can do what I want. It doesn't work that way. I, I, I'm here to bless you, but this is the order of how that blessing comes. Yeah, well, I want the blessing, but I don't want the rules. Anyone tracking that? And what happens to a culture that designs its government that way? We get an entire group of millennials. Where were we? <laughs> when you give to a child when it cries or a pig when it oinks, you'll end up with a fine pig and a rotten child. And so here you see this picture of what God has designed for mankind. Also here in Jeremiah 9, 24 but let him who glories in the, uh, who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, God says, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. I'm exercising loving kindness. There's judgment because you, you, you know the rules, you've stepped out of them, and this is the byproduct. This is how the machine works, and you don't want to be part of it, and this is what happens. And this righteousness on the earth is this idea that this is how it was created to operate, that we have a loving relationship. A husband and a wife... It all goes well when each submits to one another and they walk hand in hand with respect and dignity and kindness. The family flourishes. The, 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 the society is blessed. One pulls away and says, you know what? I want what I want. And what happens to the family? 
And there's not a person in the room who, 50% of Americans have been through divorce. Everyone in the room has been affected by divorce. But there's nobody in the room who says, that was the best thing that ever happened to me. I can't wait to do it again. Right? And any child who's been the product of divorce can say, that was the worst thing that ever happened to me. I don't want to do it again. So that's the picture that God lays out. And this is that very first beginning. God makes this covenant with Adam. He says, We're gonna, I'm going to make you, let us make, you, make man in our image. He's going to have dominion and he lays it out. He's going to tend to the garden as we've seen before. He's going to have dominion over the earth. This is the covenant I make with you. I'm going to bestow on you this loving kindness. I'm here to work for you, to bless you, to benefit you. And then all hell breaks loose. Adam and Eve take the exit sign. Sin enters the world. We start to understand what it's like to get our own way. Temptation enters. And what happens is sin is just missing the mark. That's all it is. We just fall from perfection. This is how we're designed to operate. We step away from that design of operation. And the machinery starts to break down. And imperfection starts to creep into mankind. And what happens? Be fruitful and multiply, the scripture says. There's mankind on the earth. We're very good at being fruitful and multiplying. Mankind dominates the earth. They've walked away from the precepts of God. And so, as it was in the days of Noah, right? So it'll be in the end times, the scripture says. What was the days of Noah? They're marrying, being given in marriage, eating and drinking, making merry. And all of a sudden, the, the, the judgment came on the earth. Why did it come on the earth? Because man did what was right in his own eyes. Situational ethics were moving away from the operation of the God who created this for our benefit. We step away from that and all of a sudden violence enters the earth and we start to rob and steal and murder and kill. Tracking me? We start to apply our own governmental standards. We we build a ziggurat. We, We try to have everyone dress the same and walk the same and act the same. And if we could just have the unified language and if we could all just wear the same clothing, it would take away this, this desire to covet You can create any governmental system you want. The problem is you can't change the heart of a man. What entered the world is sin. We, I don't care if all of us agree to share everything equally. Give us about five days and we'll be at each other's throats. Hello? It doesn't work that way. Even, even if you come up with a Shangri-La concept and you design it in a university and you think that somehow this is going to work, socialism, communism, come up with whatever you want. The problem is you put us in a room long enough and, and we're all going to be equal, some more equal than others. We're going to figure out a way to get more for us. Am I wrong? Is there anyone who's above that? Because I can tell you right now, you're already upset with me if you think that this will work because you want to stifle my statement. If he would shut up and we could get rid of his ilk, we'd do really well. All of a sudden, there you go. You're going to have dominion over me. There's no equality. We talk about tolerance. There's no tolerance. Tolerance is you shut up and I'm going to tell you how we're going to run my nirvana, my, my world. Well, that's what happens in the time of Noah. And it gets awful. And I don't know about you, how many people are thrilled with the shootings that are occurring? How many people are thrilled with the violence? 
We were talking last night, a three and a half hour city council meeting. Half the room was saying, we want these homeless people out of our town. The other half were saying, we've got to have compassion on the homeless. This half was saying, we've got to get rid of the Lutheran social services. This half was saying, you don't understand what the Lutheran social services do. And, and they appoint me and, 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 and council member Claudia Bilde La Pena to oversee the homeless commission in Thousand Oaks. Oh gosh. <laughs> and what do we do? We look at mankind and we say, okay, we're going to solve this governmentally. All we need is housing, low income housing. Okay. You give somebody a house and they're a drug addict, give them a house and, and you, you know, they're pedophile, give them a house because they're psychotic, give them a house. How did they get there? They're, we're going through issues in society and we're dealing with humanity. And, and then we have a governor at the state level who's just dismissing all of the convicted criminals, and we have no mental health for the most part in the state because we don't have any money, even though we're the highest taxation t- tax state in the in the in the union, and and we're left at the city level as all of our gullies and and you know highways and are filled with people with nowhere to go, and you're going to fix it, Mayor Pro Tem McCoy, Council Member Claudia Bilde La Pena, you're going to fix it. Now, if we're going to fix it, can the government fix it? Because if they could, they would have done that a long time ago. Can the church fix it? Can the community itself fix it? Well, the first thing is the folks over here have a valid issue. Our property values are decreasing. We're afraid for our children. Uh, we see needles. We see da-da-da-da. And you go to San Francisco now. Some people are saying it's dirtier on the streets of San Francisco now than it is in Mumbai. And, and we're watching an absolute influx in California of homeless issues. And so these folks have a valid issue. Over here, they've got a valid issue. If we're creating the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made, and then together in our mother's womb, isn't every human life valuable? Hello? But over here, what they tend to deal with is only the symptom. These folks think that the answer to the problem is just destroy the issue. Symptoms, we can put a Band-Aid over a wound that's cancerous so it doesn't get exposed to the air, maybe get infected, but it's still cancerous. You can put ointment on a rash, but what's causing the rash? You've got to deal with the problem, not just the symptom. The problem with the churches is we're not dealing with the symptom. What's the symptom? It's what government's doing. How do we view mankind? How do we view the fallen nature of man? No, man's innately good and we can give them any, it, it breaks down. And this is where we come to this idea that when we're left to our own devices apart from God, what do we get? A mess, an absolute mess. And so that mess increased on the face of the earth and got really bad. And I have news for you. The scripture says in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit, which is part of the Trinity, for those of you who aren't theologically minded towards Christendom, but the the idea is the Holy Spirit is the restrainer of evil. So there's good and there's evil, and he's a restrainer of evil. And so we think, well, the thing we need to do is get rid of Christians and everyone who believes in absolutes. All right, remove us. That's like taking away a police force. And, And stop signs don't matter anymore, neither do speed limits. And you just restrain absolutes from an entire culture, and you're in trouble. And millions of people are going to die because we're just going to get rid of anyone who disagrees. And, and we're going to make the rules. And if you don't agree with the rules, you know, what was the symbol of the French Revolution? The guillotine. And they had liberty, equality, and fraternity. And if you're like me, you get to live. If you're not like me, 
then the guillotine is waiting for you. And so what happened is when mankind became tragic, the DTR defined the relationship. God did this. He flooded the earth and wiped mankind out. He just said, you know what? This is out of control. And so what he did is he created a guy by the name of Noah. And with Noah, it was this new Adam. Uh, Genesis 9 is a carbon copy of the covenant, this DTR to find the relationship that he made uh, with, with Adam. He does the same thing. But in this case, he adds one more concept to the relationship God does with man. There, he, he's, he's placed punishment for humanity not trusting God and instead trusting their own violent devices. And he's just sick of mankind destroying each other. He finds one righteous, Noah, and, and through him, uh, he reestablishes this covenant. But he adds one thing, the law of retribution. Retribution. And in this law, the Noahic covenant he enforces the consequences of violence that has filled the human heart. And he gives this rainbow and he says, violence will never grow so great uh, to threaten man and his existence ever again. And all this new covenant does is it restrains the consequences of the evil in the human heart in a sense it enforces in the Noahic Covenant, government's role to enforce consequences for violence that led to the flood. And so what do you get in this Noahic Covenant? You get capital punishment. You take a human life, your life will be taken. Who enforces that? Well, governments. It does not change the human heart that sinfully trusts itself, the heart that wants to uh, resort to violence to get its own way. And the benefit uh, it wants. So I want the benefits and I'll, I'll do whatever I can to get it. All this new covenant does is it restrains the effects of our sinful hearts with the threat of consequences. So when a child says, no, I want to put the fork in the light socket and you slap the child's hand, that's a consequence. I want your hand to hurt a little bit because if you did that, you would be electrocuted. There's consequences to your actions. And this is what the Noahic covenant does. God says, I want to benefit you. And I need to show you that your human heart now, if you violate it, it's death. I want to keep you from that. I want to bless you. I want to bestow loving kindness on you. I want all this earth to work for your benefit. I am here to serve you and bless you and work for you. But if you resort to your own violent means with your sinful heart, it will destroy you and there are consequences. And I want all of your cultures to understand these consequences. But the symbol of God's grace is this rainbow. Violence is never to grow so great again as to require another worldwide punishment. And now God creates what he calls a system of checks and balances. Does that sound familiar? Where do we get that from? Checks and balances. Constitution. Give me an example. It's kind of hot in here. Can we get some air? Give me an example. Executive, legislative, judicial branch. We, the people, created in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made, right? With inalienable rights. We're the sovereign. Who do we elect? Representatives. They're our boss, but we're their boss, right? And they represent us, and then who do they elect? Electoral college. Who do they elect? 
the president. And then who does the president appoint? Judges. Judges. And the separation of powers that one can check the other and two can get rid of the third. If they're out of line in the constraints, the statute, the immovable object, this work of art that we've covered. Yeah? And why did they do that? Because the foundation of the realization that man is innately evil and left to their own devices, we will put power to ourselves and cause others to be submitted and break away from this concept of equality and a relationship. Tracking me? And in this, there's a system of checks and balances now in place to protect us from this human heart that is poisoned. And God is still working for those who wait on him. And he promises this blessing. And now we come to another relationship, defining the relationship, DTR. This is the third person in that's, that uh, screen I showed you. And here is, who's that? Who do you think that is? Oh man, we're hurting. Who said Abraham? Abraham. Abraham. What does that look like there? <laughs> Anyone know about Genesis 15? This is where Abraham is cutting a covenant with God. Remember to find the relationship? Abraham's cutting a covenant with God. Abraham's an interesting fellow. He comes out of a polytheistic culture. Uh, Ur of Chaldees, which is Babylon. He was around 2000 to 1800 BC is when he lived, plus or minus 200 years. It was a time of Hammurabi. And of course, with the Noahic covenant, we get this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And, and he, he, he moves God, or God moves Abraham out of this polytheistic culture uh, where the gods were Marduk and Anil and someone else. There's quite a few of them. Tiamat, I think it was. And he singles out one family, one man, one family to restore a vision, one God, a true God to become a light for the rest of the world. And he says to him, in, in, in your seed, I will bless all the earth. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. We're going to restore this relationship that I'm a benevolent God. I work for you. I'm your employee. You're not my boss, but I'm your employee. I'm here to work for you, to give you blessing. And I have news for you. Everyone who blesses you, I'll bless. And everyone who doesn't bless you, I will curse. And God doesn't need workers to do his heavy lifting. And this is a relationship he establishes with Abraham. He says, this covenant, this promise I make for you, here's what I want you to do. Now, you've got to pay attention because this is important. He says, this is what I'm going to do for you. This is defining the relationship. God says, I'm going to do all these things for you. I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as stars in the sky and the sands on the sea. And blessing, I will bless you. And cursing, I will curse I am going to bless you. I am here to work for you. He says, and here's the promise I'm going to make. We're going to cut a covenant. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to put it on paper. He says, I want you to go out and get these animals. He says, I want you to cut them in half. I want you to lay their carcass opposite each other. I don't know if you can see that quite here in this picture, but you'd have, you'd have the head of the bull here and the tail of the bull here, and in between the blood would be flowing into this aisleway. You got that? So here's, here it is. Now, Tom, stand up. The carcasses are right here. Come on over here. The carcasses are right here. You got all the animals laid out there. And the way that a covenant would be cut is if Tom and I were going to go into business with each other, we'd see these animals, we'd see the blood in the middle. This was a Middle Eastern concept. The blood's in the middle, and we have sacrificed some serious livestock for this. And, and so what we're going to do, give me your arm, put it in there. And, and we have made a promise business-wise or, or familiar or whatever it is, and we're going to walk through the blood together. And what we're saying is we're walking through the blood is if either of us breaks this covenant, may this happen to us. 
Tracking me? And our feet are soaking in the blood because I don't know if you've ever seen how much blood comes out of a bowl. It's awful. And our feet are just laden with it. And we're making a declaration that if either of us breaks his covenant, this is going to happen to us. And so Abraham obeys the Lord and he's waiting for God to show up to walk through the pieces with him. Does anyone know what happens? He's waiting and he's waiting. When does God bless his people? According to Isaiah. When we wait on him. When does God bless his people? Okay. Waiting is trusting, hoping, yes? Okay. So Abraham's waiting. God doesn't show up. What, what shows up? All the birds and the buzzards coming to eat it. What does Abraham do? Get away, get away, get away. Everyone's mocking him. Why are you doing this? I'm waiting to cut a covenant with God. And all the birds are coming. He's scattering. And finally, he's exhausted and he falls asleep. And then what happens? The Lord passes through by himself. He says, I don't need you to cut a covenant with me. I just need you to wait on me. I'll take it from here. Anyone tracking that? How significant that is? Do you keep your heart beating at night and your lungs moving at night when you're sleeping? Who does that? The God who holds the heavens in the span of his hand keeps your heart moving. And so this is the defining moment. This defines a relationship. He cuts a covenant. And then you come to this place with Isaiah 15, 6, which is one of the most significant statements in Western theology. Abraham believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him as righteousness. The relationship was restored. Why? Because you waited on me. I'll take it from here. The relationship's restored. That is a defining moment in Western theology. God is the employee, we're not his boss. God is the employee, we're not his boss. What does he do? He works for us. How? He goes through the pieces by himself. He maintains everything. He blesses us. All I want you to do is wait on me. And then we come to Moses. Interesting guy, Moses. Here's a picture of him. It's the best one I'd come up with. Moses. What's he holding in his hand? Ten Commandments. So Exodus out of Egypt, God blesses them, delivers them. I mean, puts plagues on all the Egyptians, gathers his people, parts the Red Sea, gets them into the, the wilderness. Uh, quail come from out nowhere. They hit a rock, water comes out. There's manna every day on the ground. They're just waiting for God. He's blessing them. They're waiting. He's establishing, speaking to them. All these things are occurring. He's laying this covenant out. He's restoring this covenant. And he starts to see Aaron and a bunch of other people kind of rebelling. And then God sends Moses up onto Mount Sinai with the finger of God. He writes the 10 what? Not suggestions, but now wait a minute. Wait a minute. Now we got a problem here because defining the relationship, 10 commandments, doesn't the law put hmm, all the weight of the relationship on the obedient work that we as humans do? What is the law? The wise restraints that make men free. The wise restraints that make men free. You restrain yourself towards evil and pursue good. And what happens? You flourish. You obtain excellence. God gives these 10 commandments. The first five are relationship with him. Second five are relationship with each other. And he establishes these things. And he does this in such a way that it still defines relationship. And it's still a relationship of grace, not of law. Look what the apostle Paul wrote. He says, 
And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. It's still a relationship that he works for us and loves us. So why did he give this 10 commandments? Well, it's interesting as you go further with it, God lays out rules and regulations of how they're going to deal with the parasites and the Jebusites and the termites and the parasites. And he does all of the, the rules on how they're to integrate with these polytheistic cultures. And he says, stay away from them. Has anyone ever heard of NATO? What is it? North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And it's, it's all the Western nations that combine to fight what? Communism, Russia. Anyone ever heard of the Axis power and the Allied powers? World War II. Did anyone know who the Axis were? The three people of the Axis. Italy, Germany, and Japan. It'd take a little longer to go through the Allied powers, but we can say certainly we had uh, England and America and France, what was left of them, and Canada. <laughs> and, and, and were they their own sovereign nations? Yeah. Yeah, with totally different forms of government in many of these areas. India was part of the Allies in a sense. And, and you had different forms of government, but, but what made it unique is they said, in this contractual agreement, they said, listen, we're equal powers. I'm not invading your sovereignty. You're not going to invade ours. But for the sake of the ones that want to, we're going to unify together. If they attack you, we'll join to attack. We'll, we'll help defend. We're in this together. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Right? We even had Russia join us, didn't we? Hello? And so we said, if one is attacked by the other, we're all in together. So really what this, this, this covenant that God made with Moses was, look, if any of these folks come after you, I got you covered. We're in this together. What I require in this relationship as I serve you is that you just do this and I do this and we will work together. You unite against a common enemy, allied powers. I am the Lord, your God. I will provide for you. You don't need to steal or covet or lie right? What are those? 10 commandments. You don't have to be like the, the other nations. You're different. You tell the truth. You don't steal from your neighbor. You don't covet your neighbor's wife. You're different and you'll flourish and your culture will flourish. And if any of these folks come after you, I got them. You just do this and watch as your people are blessed on the earth and they grow as numerous as the stars in the sky, sands in the sea. I will provide. You don't, even, you don't even need to worry about it. Trust me, I'll provide. Put your trust in him. That's what loyalty is. And the way you put your trust in him is you don't lie. You don't cheat. You don't steal. These are the things that bless you. They're not rules to curse you. They bless you. How many people would love to live in a community where everyone told the truth? where you could go up and do a business deal on a handshake and knew, you just know it's going to be all right. Anybody? And so this is that define the relationship. This is a God who works for us. And then the final of the define the relationship is David. Here he is with Nathan. Nathan's confronting him about his sin with Bathsheba, but I'm going to take it differently because I couldn't find it in a picture 
I'm going to say this is when David said to Nathan, I want to build a temple for God. Anyone remember that in the scriptures? I want to build a temple for God. And Nathan says, hey, do it. And then Nathan goes back to his room and God speaks to him and says, what? Yeah, I don't, I don't need you to build anything for me. I don't need you to, you have blood on your hands. You're a warrior. I don't need you to build anything for me. And the people called for a king. They centralized the government. They, they put the temple in a single, single location. Three times a year, people travel. I mean, for all of us who like centralized government, this is awful. But this, God still works even in a centralized government, interestingly enough. And he does this idea of renewing their trust in, in the Lord. Trust means waiting and having faith and waiting on God. But watch what God says. David said, I'll build a house for you. But this is what God said to David. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. I want to bless you. I want to bless you. You don't need to make me a house. I don't need a house. I want to make you a house. And as we know, this comes through the lineage of of David comes Jesus Christ and this idea that we're a temple of the Holy Spirit. But God works for those who wait and trust on him. Even in 2 Samuel chapter, uh, verse 11, God says, I'm going to build you a house. And so as we come to the conclusion tonight of Western theology, I promised you early on that when I gave you that kind of mind-boggling definition that God is the employee, but we're not his boss. And I said, I'd give you an earthly illustration to define that for you. Is there an employee that can also be a boss? Is there an employee that can also be a boss? How many people have an accountant? Raise your hand. Please, raise your hand. Do you pay that accountant? Does that accountant tell you what to do? Hello? All right. How many people employ a doctor? Raise your hand. Does that doctor tell you what to do? And we don't do it, but, you know, Rob, lose weight. (laughs) Any students in here? Your parents hired a teacher? Raise your hand. Does that teacher tell you what to do? Yeah. Anyone have a lawyer? Do you hire that lawyer to tell you what to do? You seek their counsel. We can all raise our hands here. Does anyone have a city council member or a government representative? (laughs) Your tax dollars hire them. And guess what? Last night we just passed an 18 million dollar. There was only probably seven people remaining in the council chambers. $18 million of your tax money just went to repave all your roads and streets. We're going to have the best streets in Ventura County. And nobody fought us. It was 5-0. I hope I represented you well because it's in the budget. We didn't overspend. We didn't have to. It's exactly where we budgeted. We stayed within the budget. We've done everything in our ability. That's pretty exciting because I think government's role is to do streets. There's a lot of things we shouldn't be doing, but roads are pretty nice. It's called a patron, a patron client relationship, patron, patron client relationship. Um, The patron provides resources. The client has a need such as being acquitted from a 
crime they've been charged with or learning if you're a student or health if, if you're somebody who's sick, you need a doctor. And that person earns a paycheck in the form of our happiness. They also get money, but in our relationship with God, he is the employee, he's also our boss. And what paycheck does he get? Your happiness. He's always wanted that. The word in Latin for health is solace, where we get the word salvation in the, in the English. You see, this entire relationship God has designed is for our benefit. And the way we see him is the way we see each other and the way we form our governments. What we believe about God shape what we believe about everything else. And if God is capricious, then mankind only makes a God the way they live. And if we have a God that works for us, could you imagine if we had that mindset and our children understood that, what that would do to a culture? And this God who works for us to give us blessing, it comes in the form of the design he's established for us that you don't lie, you don't cheat, you don't steal. All this is not not to make your life miserable, but to bless you. All of you acknowledged, I would like to live in a culture. But how do you live in a culture where people don't lie, steal, and cheat? Because God, blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord. Let me repeat that. Blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord. You're, you're a libertarian. You're a, you know, a physical conservative, social liberal. What, I don't know what your def- definition is, but who's God to you? Forget all that. Who is God? What is the foundation for your beliefs? How are you going to get to that end that you have set? Because whatever foundation you have, I don't care what you build on it, it's going to collapse unless you have a firm foundation. And let me repeat it. What we believe about God will shape what we believe about everything else. And this is what's so significant about Western theology, that this view of God is what gave you a constitutional republic, checks and balances. Public servants. Consequences to your actions a God who gives life and liberty in the pursuit of happiness. That's all biblical. It didn't come from somewhere else. This is it. Now, if you want to come up with your own system, good luck with that. We've been trying that for a number of years. We've abandoned this, and we've got a cesspool on our hands. And any one of you wants to sit on this committee with me to try to figure out in a culture that has no foundation how you're supposed to deal with the destruction of humanity. Let me know. As we're flooded with the consequences of ideology that has no foundation. And the only way that's going to change is from the bottom up. And so you come into a room like this and you don't like singing to this God or serving a God that works for you in a covenant of grace that he went through the pieces of the fire and even in our failure, he still gives us parameters and shows us that there's consequences like a good parent. There's no other religion in the world like this. None. 
But the pride of man is I don't want to submit to a supreme being and I certainly don't want to call him by name because there's things I just don't agree with. Well, I got news for you. The God that you're disagreeing with is not the God I spoke of tonight because you just don't know him. You just don't know him. You know why you don't know him? Because nobody's bothered to tell you. You know why they haven't bothered to tell you? Because they just don't care. Just leave me alone. This God is a God that's worth singing about and telling everyone about and establishing a culture that is established on all the blessings that he wants to bestow on mankind. But that requires work. And it can't be a work out of obligation, but one out of adoration. I don't do what I do because I get paid. I do what I do because I love God and I love mankind in their fallen state. And that's why I'm on that committee. That's why I'm going to do my darndest to help that. And I'm going to find a culture that's going to say, we don't want churches or private sector. We don't want any religious involvement. I'm going to, I'm going to it's, trust me, it's going, to be a, it's going to be tough. But I'm here. And I'm going to be fighting people not in my backyard. I'm going to be fighting people that want to deal with the symptom, but not the problem. And then we're going to find commonality in both and work through it. And this is the beauty of it. God intended that we be in relationship. And so I'm going to be listening to these folks and I'm going to be listening to these folks and there's going to be long hours and countless inputs and frustrated people and we're going to endeavor. I sure wish there were more help in me. What we believe about God will shape what we believe about everything else. And so that's all I got tonight. Any questions? I'll pay the penalty for you. Repeat the question again so we get it online. Well, it's not so much a question as it was a... Uh, a statement. Yeah. Uh, as God walked through the blood of uh, the animals and uh, Abraham fell asleep, uh, God's walking through it by himself was his way of saying to Abraham, this is our covenant. You won't be able to maintain it or keep it. So when you fail... I'll pay the price. I'll pay the penalty. Yep. And then also, as we saw in the passage of Scripture, Abraham believed God has credited him as righteousness. And the idea that, that uh, God's grace is sufficient in our time of weakness, the Scripture says. So it is a fascinating concept of Western theology. Unlike any other religion in the world, God benefits us even when we can't do it ourselves. Not entitled. You, you can't say, you know what, I'm going to go murder someone and I still want the blessing. No. We saw with the DTR to find the relationship with, with Noah, there's now consequences to your actions because the human heart is now tainted. And there's going to be a separation of powers and there's going to be accountability. And yeah, that all applies to it. So we see in these five theories, excuse me, these, these five covenants, we see our relationship, defining the relationship with God. So all of it plays into it. Any other question? Years ago, it, uh, it was a secular college. I took a course on Near East and Far East religion, and he made a statement that I will never forget. He said, in all other religion, it's man's attempt in some way or another to reach up to God. But in Christianity, it's God initiating and reaching down to man. Yep. And it's very interesting because he wasn't teaching from a Christian platform. He just made that statement. Interesting by that statement, Gail, that uh, you've heard me do this before. Let's just say this is a bullseye right here, and there's a, the bullseye. And, and 
the word sin is an archer's term, meaning the sin distance, how far the arrow's fallen from perfection. So if the arrow's over here and the bullseye's there, that's the distance, the sin distance. And so the bullseye is perfection. So man, all other religions in the world, similar to what your, your professor said, is man trying to hit the bullseye by our efforts. Don't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang around with those who do. And you're trying to always hit the bullseye. And, and, it, and the, the equivalent would be uh, if, if your moral strength, your, your moral character was, was illustrated by your athletic ability. And we all went out on a full moon night and we've got uh, Billy Graham, Mother Teresa and Jeffrey Dahmer uh, and Rob McCoy. And we're all going to jump to try to touch the moon, right? And, and our morality is going to be illustrated in our physical ability. So Mother Teresa, she just, she goes like three and a half miles in the air, you know, and Billy Graham being a Protestant, he went uh, 11 miles in the air. I'm biased. Uh, and, and then I get out there, I get about six inches off the ground. Jeffrey Dahmer just trips, doesn't even get off the ground, right? Now, exceptional what Billy did, exceptional what Mother Teresa did, very not exceptional what I did, and Jeffrey Dahmer, worthless. But the thing we all have in common is not one of us was remotely close to touching the moon, Right? So what happens in Christianity is God puts his righteousness on our account. The Bible says, if you believe in your heart, confess your tongue, Jesus is Lord, you will be saved to the glory of the Father. His righteousness is put on your account. He casts your sins as far as east is from the west. He's merciful and just. He's also gracious. So the mercy comes in that he doesn't give us what we deserve, which is death. The wages of sin is death. Instead, he gives us grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. He gives us life and life more abundant and the chance to apply that to the earth and watch as we flourish because he's for us. He works for us. But he's also just. He made the rules. We broke them. And if the wage of sin is death, somebody's got to pay. Well, I can't pay for your sins. You can't pay for mine because we're both on death row. So Jesus, in the form of a sinless man, died in our place and paid the penalty, right? And so what happens is, here's the arrow where we were trying to live, and God just moves the bullseye to where we are. He just moves the bullseye to where we are. Isn't that kind of cool? I don't know about you, but I think that's kind of cool. No other religion does that. That's the benefit. In your weakness, God's strength is made perfect. With the Abrahamic covenant, I will bless you. You can't do this. I will do it for you. With David, I will build your house. Epic. Another question? Back there. So this week, um, Time Magazine had an article, and it was connected with uh, Billy Graham's funeral. And the article maintained that there was a division in um, the evangelistic community relating to um, whether we should pray and keep it to that or try to bring, bring to bear some political activity to bring God back into our country. I'm, and I'm thinking about this homeless situation, bringing it to our own community. seems like the solutions that Lutheran Social Services will bring might be really, really different than what a more secular <coughs> person or organization will bring to that discussion. And by the way, I think Chris, uh, Lutheran Social Services probably knows more about the homeless in this community than just about any other organization. I just wondered, is that correct, that what Time Magazine said? And do you think there'll be some conflict when it comes to this, our own community's problems with homelessness as far as 
Okay. Find a solution when there's just two completely different um, ways of looking at it. Contending ideologies, yeah. Contending, right, perfect. Okay. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes, there will be conflict. And, and, there's, and, and that's what we've been studying in this, this concept of left and right, that the Constitution created that these processes are worked out in community. And there's some good ideas on this side, and there's some good ideas on this side. You've got to labor through that, and the process of government is slow. But if we endeavor through civility and kindness to listen, two ears, one mouth, we, we get there. And as Reagan said, you're not going to get everything you want. You're not going to get everything you want. You've got you to gotta make you know, compromises through the process of it. And, um, and so, yeah, um, and, and there's going to be contention for uh, an ideology that wants to bring faith into it because there's a secular push today. But what's fascinating is you've removed the, the, the faith component and you've got a secular mess on your hands. And after a while, and we noticed when we were in Fresno in 1995, they actually asked the clergy for help. And we had the second highest murder rate, second highest car theft rate of any city in the U.S. And by 1997, after we did a public-private gathering with pastors and with the schools and with the sheriff and all those things, and we worked as a community, we watched the highest crime rate drop in FBI statistic history. And by 97, Fresno became America's finest city. So it'll require a lot of work and a lot of engagement. People want a simple solution. It doesn't work that way. You've got to get involved. And I'll tell you what, you want to be on that committee? It's going to be late nights and, and thankless nights. But in that, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, be a, you know what a servant does? A servant speaks when they're spoken to, offers their opinion when they're asked, and you're invisible and you get no credit. You want to be great? Come join me. All right. Next question. You got two minutes, Jim. Why do you always say that? Because I've heard you pray. My food goes cold every time. But I love you and I respect you. No, I got two minutes is a long time. Okay. As many times. Time's up. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> as many times as I've read through the scriptures, uh, every now and then the Holy Spirit shows me something that I've been missing all along. And it's in John and it's in other areas, but more and often in John, it says, Jesus saying to the Father, I'm in the Father, the Father's in me, and we are in you. <laughs> the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of Jesus is in us. You got 40 seconds. Bring it home. No, no, no. Do it. No, no, no. That, I, you, I want you to, I've I heard say, it. I want you to hear the tagline. I want you I to tell everybody. Okay, I don't have to pray to him. I Here. talk to him. Amen. And he says, ask. That's exactly right. Seven times in the three chapters, John 14, 15, and 16, seven times he says, ask. I want to answer your prayer. There you go. There it is. You see that? He wa- and wait on him. He wants to bless you. I didn't say 20, I said two, and you did great, and we ended right on time. So everyone give Jim a big round of applause. That's a good one to end on, Jim, thank you. It's true, ask. 
He loves it when his kids ask. How many, how many parents, if, if your kids are asking for something that's good for them, does that bother you? Mom, dad, can I have some more broccoli? <laughs> Mom, dad, can I finish? So I, I, I don't want to watch TV. I want to go do my homework. Mom, dad, can we get to school early? Because I, I want to meet with my tutor. <laughs> Anybody? I remember my son one time going, I, I can't go with you to a movie tonight, dad. I got to study. What kid does that? So that's a good one, Dan, don't you? All right, folks. God bless you. Apply it. Have fun. 